Justin Farmer, a city councilman uh, for Hamden in Connecticut, now running for Connecticut State Senate. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you are in the 17th district in Connecticut. Is that right? Yes. And you've got some stuff happening on August 11th. You've got a big election. So can you talk about the primary, your election, and also can we learn about the district and your life story because you've got an interesting one. I don't want to be one of those traditional politician interviews because you haven't had like a traditional life. So can you share with us, how do you get here, your passions and what brought you into the politics game? Yeah, my name is Justin Farmer. I am started politics in 23, working on the state Senate campaign. Mostly started working on that campaign in the sense that a professor told me, hey, you are in political science, you got to work on a campaign at some point, or you can do a research methods project, a paper that's 20, 23 pages long, and do a couple other papers, 10, 15 pages long. So I told him, bet, I love politics. Politics is so great. It's so much better than writing such a research paper. But literally up until him talking about having to write a research paper instead of door knocking for a candidate. It's like all politicians are feds. They're all sellouts. I don't want to spend my time wasting doing that. I'd rather organize. Up until that point, I spent a lot of time with uh, undocumented groups, working on direct action, working with labor groups in, in city campaigns and yeah. environmental issues. So it was very weird for me to hop into politics in this sense where literally four years ago, the conversation was all politicians are feds and sellouts. I don't want anything to do with it. Ironically, that's still my viewpoint, although I happen to be an incumbent elected official uh, running for a different office. So People think that if you've been holding that position, it'll make you more exposed to corruption on a grander scale, a bigger scale, make you more frustrated. So are you more upset or annoyed at politics now that you are an elected official than you were as an activist? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I and I I call myself an activist elected official. Very much borrowing that from uh, Monty Williams. He's the public advocate for New York City. He's Afro Caribbean like myself, and he also happens to have Tourette's. I also happen to have Tourette's. So I'm second person in the country. With my uh, disorder to be serving in any capacity you know last two sundays ago i was out in west haven we had a white woman who was accused of hitting protesters with a car in the middle of phone banking for the campaign saw this video on facebook live called other elected officials wrapped up my phone bank drove down to the um, police station where everybody was protesting was there until like midnight one o'clock at night and then got back to the grind doing electoral work two days ago i was knocking doors on what i needed to do and blocks from my house someone uh shot a car that tried to run over uh kids on dirt bikes and stuff because he was frustrated and you know i had to talk to the police on hand i'm like why are y'all not wearing masks sus that we have a ton of officers y'all are all white predominantly poor neighborhood around mostly people of color, not wearing masks, hell with kids, on dirt bikes. I'm like, cool, they shouldn't have a gun, but how do we figure that out? That's wraparound services we need to talk about and process that and then went back to making phone calls. And I don't think you have many elected officials in those positions where they see the duality and the juxtaposition between community and organizing and political work. And that's where when I see my colleagues who, you know, 
more about talking points and more about not upsetting the status quo. I'm just like, why are you here then? We talk about this kind of like making the transition from activist to like politician or like this sort of gap uh, between like people who sort of see like the work as activism and that's like the only way and there's a lot of people who see it as electoralism and that's the only way and like there's not always a lot of in between. Do you have any kind of like compelling case that you can lay out in terms of like this or do you feel like you know maybe you're still a little unsure of if this is really the way to go at times or kind of what's your sense of like how is this working out and is there anything in particular that you've been able to accomplish in office that has made you feel like yeah this is worth it we're getting some stuff done wait so i believe politics being in a position of power is organizing i i can consider my position as a city councilor, as an organizer. The only difference is instead of getting paid no money, I get paid $2,000 a year. Um, and instead of... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be transparent. Okay. All that money, big deal. And that's $5.56 repeating, you know? That's every other day, like, you know, a Subway sandwich. Those $5 <laughs> footlongs, they add up, baby. In all seriousness, like, it's weird to me where as a disabled black man who is still finishing his college education, bachelor's degree, I can walk into a room, all universities down the street, there's plenty of lectures and things where I walk into the room, headphone wearing, and people are like, who the hell is that? And why is he here? Like, what? And I'm like, cool, I'm Justin Farmer, I'm a councilman. Up until this last election cycle, because they wanted to placate me as a majority whip. So I'm like, cool, I'm a black man in a position of power. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, of course, come in. Yes, you can speak on whatever you want. Oh, you want to talk about, you know, CCA, community choice aggregation? Well, you're not an engineer, but because you're an elected official, you can say whatever you want. Cool, you want to talk about this issue? You don't identify with those affinity groups? That you can talk about it because you're an elected official. And in that sense, just starting from the premise that politics is another way of organizing, changes the whole conversation where movement politicians have been a thing. And it hasn't been up until maybe the last two months that I kind of started to remember that this is a fact. We've seen AOC, we've seen Ilhan Omar, our brother Keith Ellison, he first Muslim man to be uh, in Congress, and now he is the Attorney General of Minnesota in this important time, trying the officers that have murdered George Floyd. Um, but you had people like Fannie Lou Hammer before, who ran under her own party. You had people, you know, you had Jesse Jackson running for president. You had, you know, Shirley Chisholm talking about unbought, unborrowed, unboss, who was a person who was born out of the civil rights movement. That's where I think, as we're having these discussions, it's, it's either or, but like politics is also harm reduction. And I want to see a revolution. I want to see radical change. At the end of the day, the situations I just talked about, those are immediate in my community. We can wait until the revolution. Like people in my community want to see change now. That's where, like, for me, three weeks ago, the police asked for $20,000 for a drone, asked for it again last week. Like, fam, we just cut $20,000, the elderly services budget. If you want to find a way to finagle money, the federal government that you're supposed to use for COVID, find a way to help our seniors, find a way to help our youth. No, you can't buy a $20,000 drone as a toy to surveil black and brown people. Hey, fucking drone, like... I'm a little baffled this is even on the menu. Oh, these times. Wow. 
You talk about labor and immigration in your district. Can you talk about what the political situation is there? What are the major things going on and what are people talking about? Um, so last year in my, in my district, in my community, we had a police shooting. And in our state, four days later after that, there was another police shooting that ended in a fatality. And we've probably had around 10 or 15 fatalities in the last two years. It's weird because Connecticut only has 3 million some people. So it's become a major issue where as we're looking at the rest of the nation, at the local level, it's just like, what are we doing about these situations? Up until uh, Corona happened, we had a major issue where we had ICE coming into our courtrooms. We passed the First Trust Act and we strengthened it uh, last session to make sure that we're keeping federal agents out of our courtrooms if they don't need to be there. I would argue 99.9% of the time, feds don't need to be in our courtroom. And the really big issue is wealth inequality. You have Greenwich, which is the richest place on the planet. And then you have the rest of the people who live in Connecticut. A lot of it is rural farmland. And you have inner city areas uh, like where I am. And it's just a big juxtaposition to them when you're talking about people the average property is going for four five six million dollars and then you have people who are making on average 30 40 fifty thousand dollars those issues play out in terms of funding um, the only last issue i can really think of that's been big is housing right now after corona hitting us we already kind of had a housing crisis but now largest city in Connecticut is 143,000 people. There are 172,000 people eligible to be evicted in the uh, next month. And there's been no real plan. So the question is like, what are we gonna do when all of these people get evicted? How are we going to build more affordable housing? How are we gonna keep these people social distance? Um, and there's been a lot of activism on the ground around that. It's kind of interesting because you yourself are at an intersection where you are personally affected by a lot of these issues. We speak about immigration, your first immigration. We speak about dealing with police brutality. And you haven't mentioned this at all yet, but you mentioned having Tourette's earlier on. And that is like a movement disorder, not just a speech disorder. And I know one of the things that radicalized Kennedy was seeing someone who was disabled being victimized by police brutality and if you don't have the ability to interpret people's yelling at you or if you're deaf or something like that or if you are not in full control of your motor functions at all times playing simon says with the police that can be a very dangerous situation so you are in the center of a lot of the situations that we're speaking about was there a single specific issue that really gets under your skin the most when we talk about political priorities and things like that? You know, for me, I would say it's education and it's kind of the clinical underlining of a lot of this. I got radicalized because my junior year of high school, I realized something was wrong with I asked for testing, my school to do testing. They finally agreed to do it. Read the DSM-4, the Diagnostic Manual skip Tourette's because I knew it of only cursing. The irony to find out that was the main issue that was wrong with me. Skip bulimia, skip uh, anorexia because I knew I didn't have those. Self-diagnosed myself with OCD. The next year, I started to have a ton of seizures. Um, and in the first three weeks of my senior year, I'm super sensitive to noise. And I ended up having like 
five or six seizures in the first three weeks of school uh, where the ambulance had to come get me. And school's response to that was, we're going to call you into an illegal PPT meeting for your education, and we're going to put you on homebound schooling because we're afraid of liability. And we're not going to spend the actual money to give you the resources you needed. It really started with a $2,000 word processor. And it ended up with me being arrested in my school by police because I refused to agree to the, the terms of this illegal meeting, which was, hey, today is your last day of school. You can't go to classes. Go to homeschool suspension. You're not suspended. But go there, finish your day there, take the bus home, and don't come back. That's the end of your high school career, you can finish it in homebound. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's not a real thing. I'm going to go about my business or you can pay for me to go home uh, and call a cab or give me bus fare. I'm going to go to class. And they called security on me. Uh, security got me. They called the police. Police officer called me a punk. This, this and that. Handcuffed me, threw me in the back of a squad car, and I had a seizure. I ended up going to the hospital. From there, I spent three months advocating for myself, having to get a school advocate, a lawyer, getting myself back into school. Uh, and the school ended up spending $80,000 on me in my senior year for my education. And I think about all of those dynamics, and now as a city councilor, putting on those headphones, I see my community has been shortchanged $2 million for the last decade. It's $20 million that should have come to our district. I think about how my district was redlined, how majority black and brown kids like myself put in school district with mostly white kids, just enough black and brown kids so that we couldn't say it's segregation. Definitely it was segregation and definitely the education we got was different being in the same building. That's where like me seeing that place like Greenwich, again, the fifth richest place on the planet, it's $2 million each year. And then my community, by the state's own assessment, say we should be giving you $2 million. We got to be fair. So also going to give Greenwich $2 million, even though they don't need it. That's like the big pinnacle for me is just seeing the discrepancies in education. That touches pretty much everything in our state. And that's where, you know, I'll end this rant, this, 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 this notion of, you know, two miles away from Yale University. And yet, the area that I live in is the poorest in the state, is one of the worst educational uh, achievement rates in the country. And yet, two miles away from one of the most prestigious schools in the country. Then we wonder how and why systems work the way that they work. I think education is a really great point. It's definitely something that we have passionately talked with a lot of guests about on this show because I think a lot of people see the need for it. However, I think one issue with like the education thing is like we can all agree that if we change the education system today that 40 years from now things would probably be massively improved. But is there any like ways that we can bring that like sense of better education to the people who have already done their time in school to the people who are you know technically quote unquote out of the education system but who never got a good education in the first place you know and now they're like sort of suffering from that disadvantage of lack of education in their life i'm just wondering if you have any visions for how we can bring that to like those folks who have already been through the system and are out the other side and like have these bad opinions and things that are formed from a lack of education and things of that nature um, what can we do for them in terms of reforming education 
Yeah, I and, and my view of education is holistic, where trade schools and colleges definitely consider part of education from, you know, not just K to 12, job training in general. You know, we know, or at least I believe that we all know that we have a climate crisis. We need more jobs that are low carbon jobs. There are plenty of opportunities to re-envision, reimagine what our economy and our society looks like. And we're not uh, putting forth the, the proper tools to retrain and educate people. In my community, uh, in the district I'm trying to represent, over the last 30 years, all the factories that existed here that had jobs and opportunities have left. And similar to, you know, the New Deal, there were projects and programs that were put in place for people to be able to work and be and add value to the community uh, and feel valued in the community, as well as um, change things that need to happen. With us being on Long Island Sound, there's plenty of uh, opportunities. So for me, it's putting money towards those educational opportunities and retraining people how to do things that we need and we don't allow people to actually get the ability to work and have the ability to actually be able to take care of themselves and take care of their communities we have situations where we end up paying in my community maybe three thousand dollars a year for a police officer for someone to clean up the community something that almost anybody and their mother will complain about spend 30 40 fifty thousand dollars to do that that's too much, that we're paying too much for that labor. That at the same time, we know that the added value uh, would be so much better and that we'd have so many more people working, creating, being part of our community. And that's kind of, to your point, you know, we can always talk about what we want to do 10, 15, 20 years from now, but we have crises now. And that's where I kind yeah. of thought this new movement of talking about envisioning, reimagining systems and institutions look like rather than to just say oh well this is how it works under capitalism so we have to work in a realistic mind frame i'm just like yeah no i would argue a realistic mind frame should be that no one should go hungry everyone should be able to be guaranteed to housing everyone should be guaranteed to be able to have health care like i don't think those are radical crazy ideas i think that's the basic standard of living and if it's basic everybody should have it Everybody shouldn't be striving to survive. Hey, let's let's talk about Yale, because uh, Yale's in your, your neck of the woods. Uh, what is Yale's relationships to y'all community? Do you feel like they've been spreading the wealth? Are they good actors? Do you feel like you need to push them once in a while? Are they actively detrimental? Just what's that relationship like over there? Um, Yale claimed $9 million after Harvard claimed money and returned it. Yale claimed they lost money because of the coronavirus and then they returned it. Initially, wouldn't let any of the hospital staff use their facilities and dorms to keep community members' families safe during the coronavirus. And then after state universities like my own offered to do it, Yale reversed their decision and after being publicly shamed. The university has its own uh, electrical grid separate from the city. It has its own power plant. Despite having 38, $32 billion endowment, they're always claiming that they don't have money, uh, that they can't 
can't tribute to property taxes what they actually owe. They always hold the $11 million that they give to the city of New Haven over their head. And they own property all across the state. And most places, they don't even pay property taxes. Like Hamden, they own $3 million of non-taxable property. Like, yeah, we're too broke, but our endowment fund makes $11 million in interest a day. All that to say, well, is hella problematic. It is not a good faith partner. There's programs and individuals who are doing amazing work as an institution as a whole. It's hella problematic. Justin, I want to ask about your initial like kind of run for city council, how you ended up uh, in the seat that you're in now. And then also like what made you kind of look at that and like the position that you're in and say, I, I want to take this one step further and run for state senate. Like what was the what was the initial run like? What was the like sort of like challenges and ups and downs? And then what's kind of like what's the reception now as you sort of like take that next step? I would just back up a little bit in the sense that I worked on these campaigns back in 2016, and my campaign manager, a colleague, convinced me to run for city council. And his argument was like, hey, we need more voices like you. And I was like, I'm broke. I don't have money. He's like, cool. We can help you fundraise. You're going to do it. Like, cool. I don't have a car. I use public transportation. I don't drive. Cool. I'll give you a ride if I need to. Um, you know, I'm disabled. Doesn't matter. Like, we need you. I run this primary. Knock doors seven, eight hours, nine hours a day for three months. And a month before the election, I turned 23 and I won the primary by 23 votes for over the mandatory recount. And the campaign was really much an issues campaign, just saying, look, there's structural generational deficits. If you're upset about Trump winning, like that has a lot to do with the Republican Party, but that has to do a lot with moderates and people where you've just allowed for certain people to be out of the conversation whether that's intentional or not doesn't matter like we need to hold up a mirror to ourselves to my surprise i won um and then in the general elections i've been the highest vote getter in town the police shooting happened up to that point i had been profiled by my own police i had the police department call he saw me when i went to visit the uh, public facility at dog pound everyone I was going called the day of and police called the police on me before I even got there. And we had other situations in town around policing that I had been combating for a while. And the shooting was kind of like the floodgates where Miss Weatherspoon had begged her a year ago to vote for me and to give me her support. A year later, her son was shot, shot at his girlfriend 13 times. And it became something really personal where we come came the Yale Police Department, my own town, the city of New Haven, the way that they just treated this area where where, where I'm very connected to, where I, I see myself very a part of. Uh, and over the last year, six months ago, I was followed by the police eight or nine blocks and called the police chief. Hey, I was profiled. Oh, well, you know, we put more police in this other part of town. All right, cool. That on blast on social media a couple of days later and he calls me i didn't realize you were upset i didn't do you want me to look into this do you want me to change things like what and, and i realized that person who's running for this senate district they don't care about the issues they're not connected to issues in the same way and this was really tell the state democratic party the national democratic party y'all need to get it together the generation that's coming up behind me 
don't care about your statues, don't care about your pedagogy, don't care about institutions, and we will literally push you into the ocean. And, and I, I kind of want to represent that change where like, it is possible for us to talk about issues in a cross-sectional way uh, and be intersectional and, and, and to be progressive and to be apologetically about our truth and reach other people. But you can only do that if you're serious about systemic change. And that's kind of how I came to this determination that I would run. And you know, 26 days away, see if that message resonates with people. I'm kind of excited about that. So let's talk a little bit about the primary that you're facing. Um, what's the landscape of the primary? Who else is running? And like, has there been like a kind of establishment pushback against your campaign um, in terms of like throwing some weight behind it, a, a sort of more traditional Democrat to beat you? Uh, or like the, the incumbent or like, do you kind of have the ear of the traditional Democrats a little bit at this point? Or like, what's your kind of like, what's your footing going up against this incumbent in the primary? Do you feel like? So the incumbent's a Republican, if I recall, right? The incumbent is a Republican. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you, I thought you were facing an incumbent in he, the primary. So let me rephrase that. He's got that. a primary. Yeah, yeah. He's got a primary opponent too. So, I was just yeah. mixing it up a little bit. My bad. Um, so let me yeah, rephrase yeah, yeah. that. So, uh, what's kind of your footing going into this primary? Um, has the like democratic establishment sort of like been pushing any candidates hard to oppose you or have you been able to like keep a pretty even footing with everybody else running uh what's sort of like your status as you head into this so there's me and a guy who ran last time Jorge Cabrera he ran last time in 77 votes from winning in a district that has 20 percent more democrats lost a ton of people um and just didn't work hard and over the last two years, I haven't seen him. And he lives in the same town as him. So I decided to run mid-February, let labor know, let working families know, like, hey, I've done a lot of work for y'all. I'm letting you know, I'm seriously thinking about running. And everyone at that point, well, we're back in Camaro. Like, you, you, got, you just gotta, you just gotta fall in line. I was like, yeah, no, I thought about it. And no one showed up and unity was hurting. So yeah, I'm probably gonna run. Talk to the guy and he's like, yeah, what's the difference between you and me? Like, what, like, what could I be doing? Oh, I'm not showing up to places. Just tell me the places and I'll show up. And I was like, cool. That says to me that you don't care about the issues, that you just want to check a box. So I was like, dope, I'm gonna run. We announced our first day of announcing, we raised $6,000. And by the end of the week, we had a campaign kickoff. By that point, all the establishment Dems were like, yeah, you shouldn't run. People calling me shouldn't run, um, you know, you're going to lose, so on and so forth. And we had our campaign kickoff, and we had 110 people there, which is more than a congressional race, someone launching here in our state. Got onto the ballot, we were able to raise $20,000, need to raise 16 for public financing. Um, we had almost 900 donors, the average uh, contribution, $24, endorsed by Sunrise, a lot of run for something, a lot of the local ground groups. We've been holding our own weight, so much so to the point where now this campaign that I'm in, we are running the largest grassroots campaign in the state's history. And some of the big party bosses, like the state Senate president, initially were backing my opponent, since backpedaled and say they're going to stay out of the primary. So 
it's just been really interesting to have a lot of establishment people who respect me and even some of them who like me but don't want to make any hard decisions so they're just backing the status quo and i'm just like this is this is why we're in this place like we we lost because we didn't have a candidate that wasn't going to put in work and people aren't excited about joe biden like how are we going to turn out people to the polls so there's been some pushback there's been some shadiness a lot of labor unions have backed my opponent because he works the stop and shop union outside of that a lot of the advocacy groups a lot of the policy groups have supported me and uh a lot of even though a lot of the establishment politicians that were initially backing him have kind of faded into the back and they are helping him they're doing it from the background so i have an interesting question for you because i have a friend in georgia that's running for uh on a local level and she says uh, she's got a no new friends policy. Are you instituting a no new friends policy uh, if and when you win? Or are you thinking like, hey, I got to expand and I'm always interested in expanding my personal circle of advisors? Or are have you been frustrated by like the reticence from the establishment to kind of be more open in helping you? I think the scary thing for me is everyone has known my trajectory before I did. So everyone could kind of see like, oh, crap, he's the loud mouth in the room and he's going to mess up everything. When I was kind of dewy eyed and didn't know any better, I'm just like, why is everyone acting weird when I walk in the room? I haven't done anything. I'm not stirring the pot. And now I'm very much in that mindset where I am here to stir the pot and it's clear. So I definitely have no new friends. My cool working coalition to get what I need for my community I'm not here to be anybody's friend. As long as my community has the issues that it does, like, cool. As a state senator, if you can't work with me, that's fine. I would be one of 200 most important people in the state. Like, my community and the issues that we're talking about, like, I'm not going to play games or horse trade. I'm just like, either we do the work or we don't. And I'm making sure to build and train people where I'm like, I want next year to help run and 11 people I'm, I'm set i said it i'm setting up on the senate it's not a game i'm just like i'm coming for people because they haven't been doing their job let's kind of like move off of these very fraught issues of um of human relationships and community resources so you're uh, uh into marine biology right you're still studying that <laughs> Uh, are you going to do that professionally, like once you leave the political frame, or is that something that you just plan to take with you as you continue as an activist? Absolutely. I, I always joke with people that when we stop being racist, sexist, homophobic, I just want to play with fish and get paid. <laughs> and, you know, for me, marine biology is deep and something close to me. It's something that I, I'm going to explore. So whenever that season of politics is over for me, that is going to be the first thing that I'm, whatever opportunities that I can do that work, I will be there. What draws you to marine biology? Why has that been such a passion and interest for you? Well, I think part of it is just the fact that because I'm first generation, I never had that experience of having that same closeness to Jamaica, uh, my mother's motherland. And then I did a fifth grade black history project, Evan B. Ford the first black oceanographer. Like, cool, this is pretty dope, but like, I don't want to study ocean patterns all day. I'm like, hold up, there's a job where you just like, look at different fish and like, understand what they do and hang out in the ocean all day. That is the job for me. Uh, Kennedy, aren't you uh, like, haven't you formerly done hydroponic stuff in your life before podcasting? 
I, I well I, I used to uh work on a farm that did aquaculture was one of the things that we did and I something that I'm also passionate about is one of the reasons why I'm kind of asking you why you're so excited about this because I'm like this is cool I like this <laughs> it's not really something that you can explain like I'm that person who gets souped when I see a fish tank and everybody else is like okay like no you don't understand like this is really dope like you don't feel this connection you don't like get excited it's like no i'm like oh, okay i'm just gonna not bring it up and just chill in the back like <laughs> y'all are judging yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean if i go to a party and they've got like a, a terrarium or a fish tank or something that's where i'm at um and i think that this stuff's really interesting actually because in part because like when you look at things like really sophisticated aquarium environments or things of that nature or like aquaculture environments of different kinds it's sort of like you know these model ecosystems in a lot of ways and i think like the study of ecosystems is probably extremely crucial as we head into the looming threat of climate change would you agree with that of course um you know as things change especially coastal, coastal communities like the way that we interact with animals and plants is just going to be crucial and as a, a perspective scientist like we learn so much we continue to learn so much from the ocean even the ways that we make knife blades we study starfish and the way that they grow and regenerate there's so much that we can learn and for me i'm just like cool how do we preserve as many of these beings that we can continue to learn from yeah that's super dope do you have any specific plans for for doing that do you want to work in preservation do you want to be a farmer like what kind of what kind of stuff are we talking about because i have no idea what most people do with a degree in marine biology aside from teach marine biology and when we talk about you know education so much of education is like we learn something so that we can get hired as a teacher so yeah for me i would love to work on a fish farm also just for me like studying like i would love to work for noah and just like catalog different species and figure out like how they're doing and like what resources they need to be doing well like that would be hope to me to just go around and see like cool is this fish population doing well what does it need to be doing well oh i could spend some time doing some scuba diving or cool i could spend some time in the water awesome i want to spend less time in the lab if possible but that like that is my dream of just going out on the boat spending time in the waters and like seeing. yeah that's that's very dope i think let's probably get to one more like major topic before we wrap this up sure I know that like something that you talk about in your platform specifically is employee ownership. Can you talk a little bit about like what that means to you? If you're kind of like, are you like a co-op fan? Are you more of a union guy? Do you think they're both fine? Do you think there's some other model that works and kind of like where, where does a lot of your uh, inspiration on that come from? And uh, what do you say to the people that push back against these ideas that like employees should be directly invested in the places that they work? I am definitely a co-op guy. My policy director, Alex Corman Controlness, is here at Yale. And furthering the idea of participatory democracy is something that I find that's important where we all have different values and different skills. We all are workers. The ability to create wealth and to exchange wealth is something that is fundamentally problematic in our society. Or being able to say, like, cool, we have businesses and 
they don't need to be owned by conglomerates or you know LLCs. Like we as workers, as people, can come together and build and add that value to our community and that money back into our community. That is something that's really attractive to me. Also, I just like think about silver tsunami. We have all these elderly people, 60, 70, 80 years old, who we've seen so many of our elders just grinding day in, day in out, many of them owning businesses where it's just like, yeah, you should be able to enjoy retirement. Like you shouldn't have to grind and worry about cool. If I close up shop, I can either give it to some business that doesn't care about the work that I do, or I can close shop and like end up having all these people who depend on me for work jobless. I feel like having co-ops and having an ability to have employee ownership is just something that will make work conditions better. Uh, it will encourage people to invest in their communities. And it's just, to me, it's dope that you have had some very successful models where you have million dollar businesses continue to make a profit and continue to innovate and do better. But also can pay all their employees a living wage without like screwing over everyone. That's pretty dope. I would love to see that for everyone. I feel like that's especially important in black and brown communities because like in Connecticut, like people don't know that there's a lot of black people up there, <laughs> like, but also like disproportionately, we're not in ownership positions up there, right? So when there's hiring decisions that get made, if you're a black and brown person or you're a person of low income, like you are on the bottom of that, that hiring poll, that hiring list. So it's very important, I think, that there's more economic means for people who have been traditionally left out of, and I mean, you're near, you're in the shadow of Yale. So patronage culture and friendship culture and hand-me-down culture uh, that, that people who are, have been left on the bottom have the means to make their own opportunities. Yes. Uh, and, you know, like, instance, downtown shops at Yale, Yale pretty much owns all the property two-thirds of the city and a lot of the businesses that exist are box stores or retailers that there are no mom-and-pop shops and the closest aesthetic to mom-and-pop shops are either male students who have found a way to finagle money to start a business or male programs that have money in them but there isn't really any community there are very few independent businesses uh, that exist aren't just like you know box stores or you know BLT stores, that there's tons of them across the country. And that's where, your point, having the ability to break into these spaces and look out for each other. Like, there used to be a dope bookstore downtown before before I was even born. Kind of shuttered its doors in the early 2000s. And now there's basically a mock bookstore that's owned by Yale that, like, gives off the same vibe like a community bookstore, but very much decent. Uh, and I think, like, the other dope thing about it to me about co-ops is like having that sense of community where you can really list your grievances and talk about what you envision for your community with less fear of retribution i also think you know when we're in this time of like police abolition being sort of a hot button topic and a lot of people kind of asking well how do we prevent crime I think that there's a very powerful impact when you invest people in their community in terms of like keeping people out of criminal behavior. If like they have 
you know, their needs provided for and they're directly invested in like the things around them, you know, in their community that provide for them. I think that creates like a really different mindset that probably doesn't lead to as much things like petty theft. And I could I don't even have to say probably it's known to prevent crimes of this nature. Uh, do you want to just quickly, before we wrap up, speak to that a little bit, like how this type of investment and other types of community investment and making people feel heard in their community can, you know, push this push this whole thing in another direction in terms of like preventing crime and, and making that a non-issue? Like I, time and time again, we see communities look out for each other, prominently seen as problematic the Black Panthers leased their own neighborhoods. They created opportunities. They created grocery stores. They created essentially what is the modern day schools, a lunch program, um, pharmacies. Um, you know, you had uh, young lords that did a ton of work to help open up branch clinics. It is possible for communities to be good stewards to themselves and for each other. I think in this time and season that we are in, uh, coronavirus has taught us we're all intrinsically important in our own roles. Two, that we have to look out for each other. There are very few of us who can take care of all of our needs. And even that doesn't really exist. Like, we all got to go to the grocery store. I mean, somebody else has to figure out how to drive a truck to get produce from here to there. And I think one of the things that we see is this type of community development and this type of community interest um, focuses us to all pay attention to each other and see how we're doing and, and actively be part of that process to voice our opinions and reflect on what we're doing and how we're doing. That's why when I see things like, hey, I have police being paid $83,000 a year. Average person in my community makes 64000 Average family $64,000. If we paid someone $40,000 or $50,000 or $60,000 and be a community outreach person, I would have so much more value. And that's literally enough to feed a whole entire family. It's not enough, but something that's already being done where we re waste resources and we returns private equity, we don't see the same returns. And also we invisibility of seeing each other and seeing what our needs are like that's where my mind frame is i talk about co-ops and when i talk about participatory democracy just making sure that everybody has the ability to speak their truth when we have those abilities i feel like greater truth is being is able to be shared okay so uh for somebody who's listened to this and they're very hyped up they're very on board what can they do to get involved with you further and to get involved with your campaign? That is, that is a great question. Follow us uh, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Justin for CT, Justin, F-O-R-C-T. Um, you can also visit our website, justinforct.com. If you want to volunteer, justinforct.com slash volunteer. We're having phone banks pretty much every day. I'm going out knocking on doors every day and like just sharing our story, sharing our perspective. We have a ton of people making dope art for the campaign. Those are ways to help and push you know, our agenda. And I say our agenda because it's a progressive agenda that we're trying to change things anywhere and everywhere that we are. So check it out. And if you really like it and you really rock, rock with it, even if you connect to Connecticut, maybe that will inspire you to help someone run in your area. Or maybe you will, you know, something that you can build on and run yourself. 
Justin Farmer, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. You know that we'll have to have you back again sometime because I feel like there's so much more that we could have covered. But unfortunately, we all have schedules and we all have other obligations we must keep. But we really appreciate you coming by. Word. All right. Safe travels. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. For those of you listening, thank you so much for listening. As always, we are not safe for wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper at Kennedy T. Cooper on Twitter. Uh, I am Brandon Buchanan at Brandon Buchanan on Twitter. And if you don't follow the show, that's at NSF Wonks on Twitter. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash not safe. And if you love the work that we do and you want to do something to support it, this is 100% independent media. It is completely funded out of our own pockets and out of the pockets of those people kind enough to help support it. And with your support, we will be able to do much more bigger and exciting things. So go check that out if you can. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.